Welcome to the very first Everything Employment podcast, a podcast where we discuss different topics relating to the world of employment. Whether you're a job seeker or employer, you will certainly get some value from the things that we will talk about. I am your host, Jags Lota, and my guest today is James Davies, who is currently a senior team manager with Shore Trust and working on the IPES contract. He has worked on different employment contracts during his time with Shore Trust, and he has a deep understanding of the challenges participants on these type of programs face, especially those with complex barriers. James, thank you for joining me today. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jags. Really pleased to be here. Um, fantastic to be given the opportunity to come and speak to everyone on the podcast. Um, I don't think this is anything I could ever have dreamed of being involved in, to be honest. So it might have been a dream when I was younger, but but I didn't see it being a reality recently. Is that being on a podcast? Yeah, it just it just sounds fantastic, doesn't it? So and, and it's brilliant to be given the platform to talk about the brilliant contract that I work on and the fantastic work that, that the staff that we have on this contract do. So that's that's just brilliant in itself. I've got I've got to say when you when you do get interviewed, because I have been interviewed myself, it's it kind of gives you that sort of um, that feeling of, oh, wow, I've done so much stuff. And you get to look back over, over the things that you've done um, and get that feeling of, OK, yes, I've got something some some great stuff to talk about so I'm, I'm assuming you're kind of in that sort of feeling that mode right now yeah definitely what's really nice to talk about my journey with Shaw Trust without having to put it in star format for an interview so it's, it's really nice <laughs> to be a bit more relaxed um, when when you talk about the journey and and the contract and the work that we've done so yeah and no, I'm, I'm I'm loving it so far so hopefully you don't you don't throw me too many curveball questions Jack. <laughs> that's that's not the intention it, it's obviously <laughs> just to extract all those those gold nuggets, those those bits of um, wisdom that you may have, you know, inspiring people out there as well. That's what it's really about. And I think in some ways, bringing that sort of attitude towards an interview, is probably a good thing as well. Um, like just having that relaxed, just being relaxed uh, the way you would be like right now, probably in a podcast, because the aim is is not here to trip people up. It's here to be like, well, everyone's someone's got something, everyone's got some sort of value to put out there. And it's it's that's what it's all about, just talking about that. And I think an interview is the same process. Do you do you do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think you make a really good point there, actually. And that's really good advice for people out there. I think the more relaxed you are, the more natural it is for you to be able to share your authenticity. And I think that's what people buy into, isn't it? Authenticity. So you have to be real, you have to be yourself. Um but at the same time, you do also have to put your questions into style format to hit the right competency points. So yeah, hopefully I'm going to do a bit of both today. <laughs> Brilliant. So let's get started with something a little bit different. A gratitude. Do you have anything that you're grateful for? Yeah. So I think the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question are the opportunities that have present, been presented to me at the time that I've been at Shore Trust. So um, and it sounds like I'm going to get an opportunity to elaborate on those a little bit further. But yeah, for somebody um, for somebody like me um, to, to be given the opportunities that I have been at Shore Trust and to be able to learn from as many people as I have and for people to show the faith that they've shown in me in this organisation. That's why I've been here for as many years as I have. And that is the number one thing in my in my life I'm grateful for professionally. And then um, I'm very grateful to have a, have a beautiful fiance as well. So that's that's my personal one as well. Amazing. And like with your journey through Shore Trust as well, because I think you've been here almost around eight years. Um, so talk me through your journey, um, because like I know Shore Trust has gone through different sort of iterations. I think there's mergers and takeovers and things as well. So was it Shore Trust you started with? Uh, was it one of the other charities? So like, yeah, it would be great to hear what your journey uh, has been from when you started up until now. 
Yeah, so when I first came into the organisation, as you say, eight, eight years ago or so, 2013, October it was, we just completed a merger with uh, with CDG. So there were a lot of people that I was working alongside that had gone through the original harmonisation piece. So there'll be a lot of people listening, hopefully listening um, to this podcast, having been through a harmonisation over the last sort of 12, 18, 24 months and some of the unrest and difficulties that come with that. And obviously, Shaw Trust have managed that really, really well. And it was exactly the same, as I said, when I first came in after the CDG merger and people were just sort of getting used to the, to the new ways of working. So uh, I joined as an employment advisor on the work choice contract, which was a fantastic contract. It, it really was brilliant. We support people with disabilities and health conditions and getting back into employment, which is everything I wanted to do as soon as I knew that this industry existed. And it was I didn't know a lot about it until sort of 18 months before when I first I first dipped my toe in. So that was brilliant. Learned from some fantastic people, spent some brilliant years in Portsmouth. It's a great city itself as well. Um, and we really managed to educate the minds of employers over the time that I spent there. And then I was given an opportunity to to take on some sort of leadership of the Isle of Wight at the time. So I think it was one of the most interesting commutes to work of anybody getting a ferry, which is fantastic. There are not many people that work for Shore Trust to get a ferry to work. So that was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. It was a good way to sort of be mindful in the morning and you could sort of get the breeze in your hair at the top on the top deck. That was fantastic. Um, but that was my first foray into management. And I was given that opportunity because I think of, of working hard and I had a fantastic manager at the time, Sam Peplow, who's now the chief executive of Yateley Industries. Which is another fantastic charity who gave me that opportunity um, and after that I, I then secured my first permanent management role as um, as a, the team leader for the work program site in North and East Hampshire. Spent about six months there then I worked on SCS for a couple of years which was which was brilliant. I was leading teams across South England and South Wales which was brilliant. The only challenge was the travel. It was uh, it, there was some real long distance traveling um, uh, opportunities in there. I went to some brilliant places, South Wales. I went to Cornwall. I went to Devon, Somerset. So some fab places across the south of England. Had a brilliant team there and a lot of that team have actually moved across to IPES, which is the contract I've worked on uh, since um, since December 2019. That's quite a lot of a lot of you, a lot of things you've done there, which is which is fantastic. Um, you like to have that variety to try different uh, work on different contracts. I mean, what is what has probably been the best contract you've worked on? Um, I think, to be honest, I, I think IPES, and I say IPES because IPES has has learned from the uh, successes and some of the uh, failures, perhaps, of some of the other contracts. So um, perhaps not failures, but more areas of development. I think is the key thing. So there's been. We've highlighted on work choice, we highlighted on SES that particularly with work choice, work choice was fantastic, but there were a number of people who were further away from the labour market than work choice could cater for. And there wasn't a programme out there really to support those individuals until SES came along. And SES was fantastic. It just didn't probably have quite the, 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 the resources that it needed to support those that were further away from the labour market. So it was it was a big improvement and it supported a lot of the people that weren't getting into work on work choice, but it probably just didn't, as I said, have enough resources. And there was a we had some we had a fantastic team that worked on that contract. So IPES has amalgamated both of those. Really, and it's got the numbers and the resources that work choice had, but at the same time, it caters for those people that need the support the very most. Um, we've got qualified psychologists and we've got qualified mental and physical health nurses on this contract, which is um, which is a massive development on, on, on where it was when I first started working with people with disabilities and helping them into employment. So definitely the best contract, IPES, for sure. That is so important, um, like to be able to signpost people to to where they need their, to, that support the most. Right. Um, because I suppose as a 
employment advisor. Um, there's only so much you can do, right? Um, but if you've got some other people you can refer them to, that makes makes a huge difference. And I think uh, something like coaching, because I know you, you you get coaching yourself, but obviously for participants as well, you know, how important is that to have, you know, being able to work with someone who's able to help you to develop and help you to get you to where you want to want to be? Oh, it's huge, Jag. So I think the the the, the beauty of the contract, the VIPES at the moment is that um, we, we've, we've worked on the past with having to signpost people to different agencies and different referral or different organisations. The beauty of this contract is because we've got joint delivery partner relationship with Health to Employment and Genius Within, and they're not in, you know, supply chain tiered partners, so per se, um, we are all working collectively and cohesively to support the case side of participants to move into work. So mm. the, one of the challenges before is that you would signpost somebody out of the organisation or out of the support, and you wouldn't necessarily have the same sharing of information, so you wouldn't know what progress was being made. You knew that you were signposting in the right direction, but you didn't know how that progress was going. Whereas the difference we've got now is because that's effectively an internal signposting as opposed to an external one, we're able to share that data because we will work on the same contract, which is brilliant. So and going back to that point around the coaching, we're always looking for ways to give the participants more access to coaching, whether that's events and it's work, workshops that we've run in, uh, that we're running that participants can access. And me, myself, you touched on it before as well. I've, I've been really fortunate um, that I, I met uh, Andrew Coates, who used to be our integration director at Shore Trust, worked for Prospects for many years, um, agreed to be my mentor a couple of years ago. And then when he left the organisation, he started his own coaching business. And I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to be coached by him. And he's helped me hu um, hugely in terms of understanding what my values are and, and how my uh, how uh, the ethics as well of my work and the way that I think and the type of organization I want to work for and the type of contracts I want to be involved in. So I've learned a lot about myself and it's and it's probably helped me to strategize a clear, clearer journey um, in, in the direction I want to head in. And I think, as I said, if our participants can have something similar, it can only help them move into employment and, uh, and have careers beyond that. It's something that you've just said there as well, like to be able to learn about yourself. Um, and I think like a participant, for example, I mean, overcoming like barriers, how important is it to uh, for like for participants or anybody really to understand that that you can overcome whatever barriers are ahead of you and be able to, you know, go into employment, um, do the things that you want to be able to do, regardless of those those things there or to look at them in a different way. And that's probably where the, that coaching element comes in. You know, how how important is that? Yeah, again, I think it's massive. And I think the, the the challenge a lot of the time, and this is why it's so important, I, I had a, a meeting with uh, with our team in Hertfordshire yesterday, and one of the, the things we were talking about was the importance of diversity within the team. And that diversity is so important because actually there are people within the team that have gone overcome the barriers that they're trying to help a participant to overcome, or at least they've they've got an understanding of what it's like to face some of those barriers. So, you know, I'm 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 being very honest, I'm very, I'm very um fortunate in in so much that I don't have some of the barriers that um my friends and my colleagues have got across the Shore Trust. I'm I'm a sort of I'm 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 a 30 year old white guy from from Dorset. So um, in that respect, um, I haven't had the same barriers to overcome as other people that I've worked alongside and friends of mine. Um, but then there's been barriers with sort of socioeconomic status and things as well. I come from a single parent family. So um, I think it's important to be able to relate and to show empathy with our participants. But in terms of, you know, some of the 
some of the barriers that they have to overcome, particularly on iPads. You know, we've got people with with sort of very debilitating conditions, people who have got justifiable cause not to want to work. And I think that's the that's the truth. And people who could say, well, I, I shouldn't have to work because of this disability, because of this health condition, because of the amount of pain that I go through on a daily basis and 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 how many difficulties I have just as a morning routine, things like that. Um, and, they, and they don't have that because it's a voluntary program. So there's the desire that's there. And I think if, if you ever want motivation to, to, to do your best in a job, it's when you're meeting the individuals that we support who have got these challenges, have got these difficulties that they face, and yet they still have this immense drive to want to work, to want to have a career, um, and to want to you know do the very best for themselves in their lives. And as I said, I think um, that motivates the staff on a daily basis. And that's why I try and keep in touch as much as I can with the front line and the work that's being done there. I want to talk about um, success stories um, because, like like you said, there's people out there who who do have barriers, um, and whether it's you know mental or physical barriers, and I'm sure there's been people who've come in who have been like, I don't think I can do anything, um, but yet you've probably worked with them to help them overcome first of all that sort of mindset, and then they've maybe moved into work, and then gone on to a, a journey themselves you know what what kind of process do you have any success stories like that you know what tends to be the the general journey you take them through um and what's their reaction at the end of it yeah i mean to be honest jags we could probably have an entire podcast series in itself of talking about some of the the good news stories and the successes that over the eight years that i've been here so i think there are two that stick out one is a personal one for me that i was the person I supported when I was I was in a frontline role on the work choice contract a number of years ago and then another one is a fairly recent one for one of the staff members that I manage on on iPads so so the first one I had a guy who had a uh, a degree in economics from Oxford University and uh, when he was first referred to the program I had a CV come through from him and we did a sort of call beforehand oh please can you send me the CV across and just the meetings at this time and what have you so I got the CV through and I mean, it was I was blown away by the qualifications and the work experience and stuff the guy had had. But it was really surprising to me that he didn't have much work, but paid work experience, given given his background and his education. Mm. Um, and he turned up for the meeting. He was a fantastic guy. And we got on really, really well. And, and you know, thankfully, we didn't have to work together as long as 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 um, as we, we may well have done. Um, and he had cerebral palsy and um, he, he had uh, it, uh, it was really difficult for him just to give you a, a flavor for, for how this affected him so it was really difficult for him to actually drink um, have a drink without a straw so he was he, he, he found it a real challenge going to interviews and presenting himself as a very capable individual that was obviously very bright very very intelligent very academic was very capable of doing certain roles and um, and he would quite often come seconds through a lack of experience or it would be um, oh there was just a better candidate on the day and it's so hard, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges. We know that discrimination takes place, but we, it's very difficult to sort of prove it. It's difficult to, um, to 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 identify it at times, or to be very clear on that. And I think obviously everybody should everybody has a responsibility to um, to point out any areas of discrimination that they see taking place. But it's really challenging when you're working with participants and the employers give employers give reasons that um, that that, as I said, are, are not attributed to a disability. So. Anyway, we worked continuously and we realised what we probably needed to do was find an employer rather than him going to interviews because he got loads of interviews for different jobs. And rather than just 
rather than just turning up with an employer and hoping that they were going to have the, the mindset of somebody that was open-minded supporting someone with a disability and giving them a chance uh, we adapted a covering letter we adapted adapted a speculative letter we had a call with uh, with the office of national statistics before this person started work um, and we we're able to talk about how his disability impacted on him and what reasonable adjustments were required in the workplace and the long and short of it is that he went to the interview he didn't come second for the first time on the work choice program and for many years before that he got a job and and to my knowledge he's he's still working for that for, for that organization now which is i think one of the great great success stories for me and i i will use that when i talk to the staff quite a lot yeah so that's that's a really good one and then we've had a a, a more recent one that I'll, I'll cover quickly where um it was just it was more through the tenacity and the desire from the key worker on ipes to get this person into work and the the amount of work and effort she went to in terms of sort of going to the shops around Christmas time and buying shopping and putting it on the doorstep um, during COVID so that you know we were able to to give the participants some food at a time when they were sort of financially struggling and all those things and negotiating with HR departments when things weren't going going to plan um, and the the participant was sort of told that COVID-19 impacted on the business and she worked tirelessly to to keep that opportunity open for the person who who is still working there now so and, and that was really um, all down to his desire and, and her tenacity and desire as well to keep him there and, and get him into that job so that is a fantastic story from my person. That's probably what probably keeps you going in mm. in like like every single day right having those success stories having those uh, those people having people get into work and and stay there uh and like we said overcoming overcoming barriers as well uh one thing that you said there was workplace adjustments and i know ipairs get involved i mean something that we haven't actually asked is what does what does ipairs even mean uh first off um, yeah let's, let's, let's go there and then let's go into a little bit more in depth about ipairs and uh, around i think which is an important part of the workplace adjustments yeah, so so IPES is um, intensive personalised employment support. So it was commissioned in sort of early to mid 2019, and it's um, and we started delivery on the 2nd of December 2019. So we've been running now for a little over 18 months. So the idea of the contract was to was to work in tandem um, with joint delivery partners. So uh, we've got health to employment, and we have Genius within um, that are our joint delivery partners on IPES and support the, um, the the entire caseload across the the contract package area. Shore Trust were were really were um, did really well in the bid and we were successful in securing two lots. So we secured CPA one, which is the Central England region, and then also the Home Counties region, which actually includes London on IPES, unlike Jets and Work and Health Program, for instance. So so CPA five for us, which is the area that I manage. So. The idea of the program is that it's 15 months long and we've got 15 months to intensively support somebody into employment. So it's quite a full on program. Um, we offer participants weekly appointments, although not all take them. Uh, the idea of those appointments are really that we are there to help people overcome the barriers that we've sort of talked about. Um, identify the uh, target dates for employment and the sorts of jobs that they want. We go through things like key life areas assessment, which I know will be very familiar to people on the work and health program that might be listening. So we, we use that as a way of gauging what how those the barriers that are presented impact on the person and how what the severity is of that impact too. So I think that's really important to look at. So we know what we need to tackle first and that helps us then put the right interventions in place that will be formalized in an action plan that allow the participant to overcome the, the most extreme barriers first in order to move closer to obviously securing employment. So 
we participants are allocated based on their primary health condition. So the reason we've got the three joint delivery partners are that um, we've got one that specializes in neurodiversity, which is genius within. So those that have autism, Asperger's, learning difficulties, for instance, um, are predominantly going to be referred to genius within. Those with a mental or physical health condition will, will primarily be referred to health to employment. And those with what we call complex barriers will be referred to sure trust. And we they're all managed um, under under myself and, and, and my team. Um, and they all work in collaboration within a multidisciplinary team. So the, the, the theory is that all of the staff within that multidisciplinary team, and we have one multidisciplinary team per, per county, will work cohesively um, and in conjunction to support that person through and into their journey into employment. If they're successful in securing employment, and we really hope that they are, and we put our, a lot of work and effort into, into making that a reality, we then support them for up to 12 months intensively in work as well. So it's six months intensively, and then we phase out that in-work support over the, the, the uh, following six months. So our idea really is to teach somebody what's needed to overcome the barriers and find a job, and then teach them what's needed to sustain that employment over a 12-month period. And the, the critical success factor for us, and it's not in our bid, but the critical success factor for me, is if that person can finish this programme, having had a job and having sustained that job for 12 months and never have to come back onto a welfare to work provision again, then we've done our job. What you've done there, what, the way you've summarised it, um, I think is very clear uh, for people to understand exactly what IPES, what you do in IPES um, and how you work with your participants uh, and the journey as well. I think the way you've specified the journey, like the key life areas as well, uh, is, is so important. Um, and for anybody who's, who's listening, they might be somebody who's, who does have those, uh, a barrier they want to overcome to move into employment, or maybe they know somebody. I think what, what you've explained there, James, is, is, is so important for, for everybody to understand that. Um, and hopefully more, more and more people will be able to developing yourself. And this is, this is what it's all about and in, and in a great environment as well. So in terms of workplace adjustments, because I know that's quite a big, big part of what, uh, what you get involved in, in IPES, just so that participants, anybody who's listening can understand where you get involved with the, the those workplace adjustments is which ones do you feel are the, the sort of main ones really? Yeah, so I mean, there's I, I think some of the the really simple adjustments are um, are often the ones that are the hardest for the employers to identify themselves. And I think one of the biggest challenges with workplace adjustments, if I can speak freely, is that a lot of employers who are sort of um, wanting to obviously develop their corporate social responsibility, they don't want to ask a question that could be that could be discriminatory. So they don't want to ask us a lot of the time and say, well, I don't know what to do with this person. I'd like to be able to hire them, but I don't know how to hire them because I'm concerned that if this were to happen, they they would be you know at risk or something like that. And and I think that's and what we try to encourage is that open dialogue so that we can educate. That's the most important part of the work that we do. It's not about um, about forcing an employer. It's not about berating them for not making the right adjustment. It's about educating them on what adjustments are needed. So one of them, for instance, are things like personal emergency evacuation plans, which come up quite a lot. So if you've got someone with a hearing impairment or someone that might be profoundly deaf, that could be, let's say, for instance, working in a warehouse, um, if an alarm goes off or if a serious incident or a fire or something were to occur in that warehouse or that factory, a lot of employers are quite frightened about what they do, how they can be responsible for making sure that that person who can't hear that alarm 
um, is able to identify that there is an alarm and then they need to leave the building. So there are very minor, simple adjustments like a high-vis jacket that explains to people that they've got a hearing impairment or they're profoundly deaf. Um, buddying them up with somebody, buddying is a, is a big thing as well. So you've got someone that's effectively assigned to a, um, uh, being responsible for them in a certain situation. Um, and then it could be, as I said, having that plan so that, that you know, person A goes and speaks to our participant and informs them as soon as the alarm goes off and it's their sort of responsibility to do that. And then there may be a, a fallback option as well of persons, person B or person C um, coming and checking whether that process has, process has taken place. It, that's a really simple fix, but it's, it's, it's dramatically increased the number of people that we've been able to support into employment with a hearing impairment into those sort of factory and, and sort of manufacturing roles. And as I said, that's a lot of the time people, people have this idea that it's all about, you know, it's all about adapting buildings and putting ramps in place. And that is a really important part of it. As I said, the people who have, who are, you know, maybe wheelchair users, for instance, or people with um, sort of mobility issues, that is a, that is a really important part. But there are some simple ones. Um, one of them, another one, for instance, we have a lot of people who struggle with um, sort of cognitive understanding and uh, multitasking is a real challenge for people. And it's actually one of the biggest reasons for people with learning difficulties um, and at times some people with um, who are on the autistic spectrum struggle to sustain employment. Um, and, and one of the challenges with that around the multitasking is that employers, particularly in, say, retail, for instance, may say, right, so, um, person A, I need you to go and do this, 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 and this, and then come back to me at one o'clock and let me know when that's all done. And a, a slight adjustment would be to say, could you go and do this and then come back and see me after you've done that? So that you're giving somebody one task at a time and you're simplifying the task so that they're able to go and do that. Now, for someone, as I said, that might struggle with memory or struggle with sort of um, uh, taking in lots of pieces of information or someone that's had an acquired head injury, that can be the difference between that person being able to accomplish their, uh, their task by lunchtime or failing to do them and then being informed that they're, they're not fit for the job. Um, and, and it's those very minor, minor tweaks that employers make um, that really make the difference to the sustainability of people with disabilities. It's quite incredible because it's just, like you said there, just very small tweaks um, and just being aware, because awareness is so important, right? Um, just being aware that you can make those small tweaks and the person um, who, who may have a barrier is able to do this is this this job. Like for myself, like I, I used to work on the Work Health Programme myself. And you get that feeling like with somebody, like when you're working with a participant, um, that you're like, actually, this person can do this job. And it's, it's helping the employer understand that as well. So it's like the barriers are not necessarily always with the participant. The barriers sometimes with the employers themselves and understanding that actually, if you make some simple adjustments, simple tweaks, that you have so many more uh, people that you can you can uh, actually hire uh, and take on take on board with so many different skills. Like yeah, we talked about, like something you mentioned before was diversity and having that in the workplace, uh, and how important that is to have those different skills. And I, I mean, think. another way to look at the diversity as well is for somebody who's may have not never worked with someone who could have you know mental or phys physical health um a ch like a challenge that they can you know just being around the people you you kind of learn from them as well i, I felt that was the case when i was on the work and health program as well that i learned from my participants and how important that was uh to understand that and like for me, there was one particular participant that stood out for me where I was like, wow, this person is, uh, I think they 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 had 
autism, but they had such a great get up and go attitude. That for me was like the best participant uh, because they they surprised me. They just went out and did things, and I was like, this this person can pretty much do anything. So it's 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 good to see, and it's also important to understand that's just simple tweaks uh, yeah. that I needed for people going into work. You know, just those adjustments, um, and the work that you're doing with iPairs just to help people understand them. One thing I wanted to touch upon was the interview process mm-hmm. because it is a bit of a one size fits all. Yeah. You have and I feel like it's more catered towards somebody who doesn't necessarily have any barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the typical it could be one to one interview or it could be a one to one, two, three or four people, um, which with somebody with barriers doesn't always work well. And I think with interviews as well, the tendency is, um, especially when you're filling out application forms, it could be how's how is the participant going to get there that's that or and how they're going to get into the building and the adjustments and where they're going to be in the building that's where it tends to go but i feel like the actual interview process is a one-size-fits-all so is any work that you've done with employers around the adjustments of the actual interviews themselves and there could be other things as well is there if there, if there's any yeah. other thing which you've you've helped with as well then yeah by all means it would be great to hear, hear that and i'm sure you know, whoever's listening, whether it's a participant or even an employer, will get some value from that. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, one of the the big things from our perspective is is around making sure that the interview process is in, as is as inclusive as possible, and that's the that's the key thing. So, um, part of sort of broadening that inclusivity is uh, is about. Uh, using things like work trials and work experience as a way of someone presenting themselves as capable of doing the job. So one of the prerequisites for IPES is that a participant completes up to 16 hours of work experience. And we we try and push for much more than that over the life of the programme so that um, in theory, a participant is able to effectively demonstrate their capability for that interview in a practical environment by doing the job itself. So that work experience or work trial can be a really successful way of allowing the employer to 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 observe that participant at work we know that not everybody is is able to present themselves um in the in the same way um in a in a traditional interview environment with question and answer session i joked at the start about following that star format i think that's you know the star format is quite complicated and actually it takes away the sort of um, some of the, the the natural free-flowing conversation for people without disabilities or health conditions so if you've got a learning difficulty um, or you have um, autism or Asperger's, trying to then convey your answers through that staff format can be a real challenge. So I think it's a, it's about speaking to employers about perhaps um, it getting a gist for the type of questions that are going to be asked in advance so that participants can start to prepare for, for what questions they may be asked. That's particularly helpful for people with Asperger's or autism so that they can allow themselves to process what they're going to need to say and what they're going to be asked before the interview takes place. We've had instances where staff members have gone alongside and sat in interviews for a bit of moral support. So it would be inappropriate for us to answer the questions on behalf of the participant. And that's not empowerment, which is the, the antithesis of what we what we work for. So we, we really want to be able to empower our participants to independently get a job on their own merit. So what's important in that is that we can be there for a bit of, as I said, moral support. We can be there to sort of um, help the participant get in the right frame of mind before the interview to be able to sort of have a debrief afterwards and digest how the interview went, um, potentially encouraging the participant to make contact with the employer afterwards and thank them for the opportunity, as we, we you know, we probably all do. Um, but it may not come as the most natural 
um, action for somebody with a with, with a particular disability or health condition to do that. So there, there are those sorts of things. There's also the um, around things like group interviews, for instance, for someone with high levels of anxiety, that can be really difficult and it can have a massive impact on that person being able to demonstrate um, as comfortably as we would like them to their, their suitability for the job. So uh, if, there are, if it's a group interview environment, can we ask for a reasonable adjustment and for that to be on a one to one basis with that person? Or if that person's comfortable with only one other person being in the room at the same time, could it be the case that they're split into groups of two? It's always worth asking the question, and that's what I will say to the staff, and that's what the staff will, will, will do with the employers. They will ask the question because the, the trouble with something like the term reasonable adjustment is it's very ambiguous and it's very mm. subjective. So what I deem as a reasonable adjustment, you may see as unreasonable, um, and, and that's the same case with employers. So we could be dealing with one employer and their exact competitor who deliver exactly the same product or service may see that adjustment that was made by their competitor as completely unreasonable and not willing to do the same. So it's about trying to find a solution that works for the employer and works for the participant. You know, what we don't want is we don't want the employer to feel that they're um, that, that, you know, they're not able to follow the process that they need to find the right candidate. But at the same time, we also want to make sure that it's inclusive so that our participants get the very best chance of having of securing the job. What do you think are the barriers for employers? I mean, do you do you find that employers generally are quite open to working with you uh, or do you find there's still a bit of a barrier there? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. I mean, we've seen um, we've seen monumental progress. I mean, I've seen monumental progress over the 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 nine or ten years or so that I've been working in this industry, um, just in sort of how open-minded participants, um, uh, not participants, employers are to having these conversations. Um, and actually, to be fair, how open-minded participants are to us having conversations on their behalf. That's actually a really important important part as part as well. Because when I first started in this industry, working with people with disabilities and health conditions. The stigma around mental health, for instance, um, prevented a lot of our participants from being comfortable with us speaking to employers about it or disclosing it to employers. So that's changed now. So that's allowed us to have those conversations around reasonable adjustments that, we, that the participants may not have been comfortable with us having on their behalf probably five or ten years ago. So that's a big step in the right direction. Um, I think that the, the, the challenge, or the, the, one of the other advantages is because Shore Trust has a fantastic reputation, we've been around since the early 80s, um, we're a well-known organisation for the type of work that we do, um, you know, arguably the most well-known organisation for the work that we do. So we've got a network and a bank of employers that we work with who have already shown the flexibility to make those adjustments. So we want to target those employers, we want to, to continue um, for, for them to have the faith in using us um, to fulfil their recruitment needs. Um, and we've got a lot of cases where employers have of, of ring fence positions because they know that they get a fantastic service from Shore Trust and the participants that we highlight and select as, and submit as suitable for those vacancies turn out to be suitable um, and, and sustain in those jobs for a long period of time. So we've got that. We've also got the Disability Confident Initiative as well, which is which has been running now for a few years. And I think that's obviously gathered, gathered some momentum over, over the last few years. So there are more and more employers wanting to sign up for that and wanting to work towards their Disability Confident Leader status which we as a disability confident leader can help them achieve. That's a, that's a big part of it as well. So I think that the employers are becoming more open-minded to what they need to do and, and, and ensuring that their recruitment process is inclusive as well to allow them to reach that status. Um, but in terms of the barriers, I think we're, we're still there in terms of 
um, it's, it comes back to that education piece. And there is a, a misconception that from some employers that a person with a disability or health condition will slow down the workforce, will, will not be able to work as productively as um, somebody without a disability or health condition. And, and the reality is that in some aspects of the job, that may be the case. And what our job is to do is to present what aspects of the job they can do better than somebody without a disability or health condition. And that's what's really important. And that comes again back to the conversation we had about diversity of workforce. So if you've got somebody that, yes, may struggle with this one particular task and may do it slower than somebody without that said disability or health condition, but on the flip side can do something else at a much better and more accurate rate, then, then you, you know, you're, you're, you're getting um, exactly the same output, but just across different tasks and different actions. And sometimes it may be about the employers realising that when I place this person in this role instead, they can actually outperform others. So it's about making that adaptation as well for a participant and thinking, well, I want this person in my workforce. Which role can I put them in? We'll get the very best out of them and will get me the very best output as a as a you know as an employer. That's really interesting because like what, what you've said there, we might be better at one than the other. Uh, yeah. and I, I think it's about helping an employer understand that actually that applies to absolutely anyone. Um and it's not necessarily a case of looking at someone with barrier and saying they can't. It's almost like there's that there's that conception of you look at someone with a barrier and think they can't do anything. Mm. Uh, and that's probably where, like for, for example, the employment programs like, like IPES, Work and Health, saying well actually, they might not be able to do some aspects of a particular job, but they're going to be absolutely amazing doing some of some some of the other aspects. Like you said, in some cases better than anybody else <laughs> yeah and, and, and actually that's that's a really important part to make a uh, point to make and I say that because we as an organization need to be the ambassadors for, for for that change that we want to see in in employers and if you take yourself Jags as an example you've obviously worked on the work and health program and you've made a massive shift over to the marketing studio um, now you obviously did a fantastic job on the employability contract um, but it's been identified by yourself and by by the organization that you're you're going to be um, even more of an asset to the organization to work in a completely different department. So if we can evidence that we're doing that as an organization, I think we have to do that as an organization for us to then be able to educate an employer and say, well, you should be doing this too, because it's worked for us and it helps us to have the most productive workforce and output possible. Yes, it reminds me of a it reminds me of a quote from Einstein where he said, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Yeah, that's what we were talking about. There just reminds me of that, and it, it applies to absolutely everybody out there. Mm -hmm. um, we there's genius within everybody, and I think this is what the key thing of the employability contracts is actually helping or educating, like the word that you've used, uh, people to know where their genius lies and helping mm -hmm. them find that. And I think that's so important, and it leads me quite nicely onto just human resource or people services, it depends on what how a company is defining it. You know, what what can they do? If there was like one thing that they could do which could influence the culture within the company to be more inclusive, or what do you think is the number one thing? Well I think one of the things that that I mean over recent years we've we've been able to rely on data more and more over time. So it's I think it's a fantastic question and I'm sure there'll be lots of different opinions on what can be done here. But I think one of the first tests really is to see if you're an employer or you're a HR manager and you're looking at the data that you hold within your organization, how many people have you got um from a BAME background, how many people have you got from a disability? 
um, uh, with a disability or health condition applying for work in your organisation? Because I think first and foremost, that should give you an indication of how attractive you are as an employer for somebody, um, uh, you know, somebody of, of a minority group um, to or, or a protected characteristic to work for your organisation in the first place. That's that's I think the very first thing that that somebody in HR or people resources should be looking at. And then the next part of that is how many of those people are actually succeeding in an interview and how many of those people are being taken on and employed within the organisation. So I think before you can actually take any remedial action, you need to understand where the action is required. So and I think that that reliance on data for us as well is really advantageous. So it allows us to look and, as I said, and, and, and make those assessments so that we can then say, well, what do we need to do to, to make ourselves a more attractive prospect? Because what we want as well is we, you know, we want to be in a world where um, our participants or people that are interviewing for jobs have exactly the same amount of choice about whether they start with an employer as the employer does for choosing them. And I think that's a really important part. And we say that to participants all the time, that when you go to an interview, it's an opportunity for you to assess whether that's the right place for you to work as much as it is for them to decide whether you're the right person for them too. So I think that data as well shows whether whether there's the appetite within people to want to work for that organisation. And if that isn't the case, then the organisation has some work to do. And that's where Shore Trust can come in to, to help. That's huge because... Um, that mindset of it's not necessarily about the employer picking you. It's as much about the person picking the employer as well to under to understand that, because, you know, going into an interview is about seeing what the employer is like and whether you actually want to work there um, is, is such a such an important thing. I don't think everybody fully, fully understands that sometimes uh, when they're going for for a job, because it's like if you're going to go to a place and. You don't have that right feeling about the place. You don't feel like they're going to they make, like you said, those adjustments. Um, then do you really want to work there? Mm. Yeah, are you going to be happy working there? Uh, isn't it better to be with an employer who is willing to show that flexibility, to be inclusive and um, really take on board what it is that you need as an employee? And I mean, it doesn't necessarily, it, this, this is, Absolutely anybody. Uh, it could apply mm. to absolutely anybody. So that's that's an important thing. I think you you've said there as well. Is, uh, and I think people listening can really benefit from that. It's, it's much about you picking the employer as it is the employer picking you. Mm. Um, so that's that's a, a great a great thing to to um, to actually touch upon. Another aspect that I want to touch I want to talk about as well is something that you talked about when you you know you did a bit of traveling you said you were on the ferry mm. going to Isle of Wight with anybody who's you know may have a barrier I mean I can imagine traveling could be quite a big part as well yeah. um, and you know most especially working on work, the working health program you know most people wanted to have a very local job mm. um, but no no not understanding that actually maybe they could travel a little bit further yeah. uh, and get the job that they would actually enjoy doing so what would you say in terms of overcoming that particular uh, obstacle of travel? Um, how do you work with participants on, on that on that side of things? Yeah, I think we probably, like with anything, is you should approach it the same way as you would yourself, wouldn't you? So it's about that mindset and it's about the positivity of it. And um, if I give you an example of yesterday, so um, for, for the first time in a while, I went to actually physically see some of the staff members, which was... Which is brilliant to have that opportunity to be able to actually physically see each other again for the first time in ages. Now that gave me, now working from home is quite relentless for instance, or if you're working just around the corner from where you from where you live, so if you're working 
at a local shop, for instance, just in the village or in the town that you live in. Your commute to work, maybe what, five minute walk, 10 minute walk. If you're working from home, it might be a 10 second walk um, down the stairs. And all of a sudden you're in your place of work and you're straight in work mode and you're working then fairly relentlessly until the break that you choose to have and then the same again until the end of the day. So I think it's about looking for what you gain from that that travel as well. So you've already touched on it and said that it's about um, sometimes making a sacrifice in order to achieve the your aspiration or have a better opportunity of a job. But at the same time, it's also trying to enjoy parts of that too. So I said earlier, obviously the Isle of Wight, I mean, it was, it was, it was great, but like within most things, it becomes quite monotonous if you're doing it on a regular basis. And my first job, my first actual management job, I was, uh, I was working in Basingstoke and living in Portsmouth and I was getting the train there and it was sort of, you know, about an hour on the train. So it's, a, it's quite a long time to spend. So it's about what do you do with that time? So I started reading more than I'd ever read before in my life. So it gave me an opportunity to, to, to read. Because I think that there's a tendency if you're in a certain a type of job like we're in, for instance, that you might start working on your laptop on the way there or mm. you start thinking too much about work. So you're actually your, your working day becomes longer. Whereas if you start using it for something constructive, listening to music, it might be, as I said, reading. It might be writing, writing you know, songs or poetry or whatever, whatever you know, takes your fancy, drawing, anything it might be. Um, that can give you a bit of time if you're on the bus, if you're on the train. Um, to do something like that, to think about something else, to learn a language, for instance, eh, anything. There, there, there are so many different things that you can do. Um, but I think it's about finding the balance because what, what we want is we want people to, um, we want the journey to be sustainable. And there, mm. are, there are cases where participants or, or we will all say, oh, well, I really want this job. So I'm going to overlook the fact that that is going to be a really troublesome and difficult journey. Um, and then it becomes unsustainable because after three months you realise that you, you can't continue to do this. It's too far. It's too long every single day or it's too costly. So it's about finding that balance and it's and it's about broadening your horizons at times as well and thinking, well, working in a different place with a different atmosphere, a different culture can give me greater knowledge and greater experience and, and educate me more as a person. Um, so, again, I think like with anything, it's about balance, Jags. Yeah, I 100% agree uh, having that balance and you you said they like you said the sustainability even though you may enjoy the role but if that commute isn't quite right then it's not going to be sustainable and that could definitely be one of the things that um, impacts on things like you know retaining a job and what other things do you think impact on retention yeah so i mean the, yeah i think the travel is a really good point um the, the actual job that you're doing and how fulfilled you are in that job as well and that sense of sort of value and purpose that you get. So we're all very lucky at Shore Trust. We, we, we work for an organisation that has a fantastic vision and the strategic directive goes into that in much more detail. Um, so we have that sense of purpose and that value of the work that we do. So I think it's important for everyone to feel like that as well. And and that's and I think what was interesting is we saw during the COVID-19, the, the, the original sort of lockdown from the pandemic that um, traditionally, perhaps some of the more entry level roles like retail, for instance, part, you know, people that were working in those industries may have felt that they were a cog in a wheel or a cog in a machine, whatever it might be. Whereas all of a sudden they were deemed key workers and people started to give them the respect that they deserve for providing a really important and integral service to, to, to society. Um, and I think that's really important in whatever job you do um, is to try and think about what your overall contribution is, what whose lives you make better by the work that you do. So I think if you if you can feel that sense and if you can understand what the value is of your work, then that can help you to be it to be more sustainable. And it helps you overcome those times when you get challenges, because no matter what job you do, at what level you're at, there are always going to be challenges in that job. So 
that drive to overcome it because you know that you're going for a greater good. You're, you're doing this for a greater mm. good. There's a contribution, there's a value, as I said, there's a purpose. Those sorts of things are what gets you out of bed in the morning when you think, oh, I just can't be bothered to go today or I don't feel up to it today or I'm not having a, you know, I'm not having a great day or, or you know, the boss was a bit moody with me yesterday and I'm a bit worried about seeing them in the morning. Well, all that, as I said, that the, the wider perspective is what's really important. So there are things like that. Obviously, the um, there are other bits, as I said, working hours and things like that as well. You know, we, we want people to have to work the hours that suit them. So certain people with disabilities and health conditions may not be able to work full time. Um, and then other people with certain financial commitments may not be able to work part time. So it's about also, again, making sure that the job you go into is the right job, because what's really disheartening for anybody at any level is going into a job and then losing that job or coming out of that job and building yourself back up afterwards can be really difficult. So finding the right job in the first place and using the support that's on offer through employability contracts that Shaw Trust deliver um, will, will, will should help you identify what is a more sustainable job before you start one. So how do, how do you tend to help a participant who may not know what they can do in terms of work? You know, how do you help them find particular jobs that they can do or that they actually want to do? How, how would you go through that process? Yeah, that's I mean, there's there's a few things that you can do. So we've got different assessments that are available to us, for instance, things like key life areas assessments and looking at the the the, the sort of the rea reality of the of the aspirations in terms of the jobs that people want to do and drawing them a sort of, a, a, you know, a pattern, really. So, you know, if if when I first joined Shore Trust, if if I'd have only wanted to join Shore Trust as the manager of, of a CPA, then that aspiration would not have been realistic based on the experience and the skills that I had coming into the organization. So it was, how can I how can I get to that level in the next eight years? Um, and, and where do I need to sort of start on that journey? And what are the different stages I need to overcome? So that's really important for people is saying, well, let's work with a long-term plan for you. you. We may only be supporting you for 15 months here. We may only be supporting you for 12 months. As I said, IPEDS is an example of that with the contract. But what can we do to support you for the next 10 years? So can we put a plan in place that's going to allow you to take the steps towards the overall aspiration of getting to that position you want to be at? So that's a really important part. But in terms of identifying the the, the types of jobs that people should go into, I think it's, it, again, for, for those of us that have been lucky enough to try different jobs, and I say lucky because, you know, some people would say it's unfortunate to bounce around into different jobs and perhaps not find that sustainability, but it, it's lucky because what, what you've done is you've given yourself an opportunity to try something. So you've tried it, that gives you an indication of whether it's the type of job that you want to do. But what's really important is if that job doesn't work out and it doesn't turn out to be the job that you want to do, it's about either identifying yourself or working with somebody. And that's the sort of work that we do to identify lessons or go through like a lessons learned debrief. So we can say, well, what what did we enjoy in that job and what what did you not enjoy in that job? So let's try and find a job that does more of what you did enjoy and less of what you didn't enjoy, because then the next job that you find is going to be more sustainable. Now, if you can do that through work experience, that's fantastic. So, um, again, a lot of us would have in our sort of um, penultimate year at secondary school would have gone and done some work experience somewhere. So that will give you an indication of, well, this is what I perhaps I thought I wanted to do or that or I realised there are parts of this that actually I really enjoyed. So I think anybody that's had the, the luxury of being able to do voluntary work or work experience will will find it easier to identify what they want to do that way. That's so, so true in, in terms of, I think there's this kind of indication that whatever job that you do um, is going to be like the job for life. That's what, you once you get it, that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. But it doesn't always work out that way. Um, not necessarily because it, it could be just that you want to do something else. You want to try something else. Uh, like you said, moving around, trying different things is, 
just as important as maybe staying in the same place for for many many num- number of years but obviously once you find the thing that you enjoy doing then of course you you want to just keep doing it so you'll stay there for a while but sometimes it's trying different things right it's yeah, yeah. doing different things um and understanding that you don't always have to be there for you know the rest of your life and i think sometimes that is a bit of a barrier for people because they may look at a job and think i don't want to do that even if they may only have to do it for short amount of time if if it's just going to give that experience to move into that direction they want to go and i think what you said there about creating a plan uh mm-hmm. having someone to work with to create that long-term uh direction uh with a purpose involved as well is is huge um and i think that's so impactful because there's so many people nowadays who probably leave education uh but they don't know what to do so to have employability programs out there to at least guide you along that way what you can probably do long term um is 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 so important mm, yeah no and and i think it's, it comes back to that part around social mobility doesn't it as well and if we look back at the older generation for instance who may have said that the job for life theory came from and you'd see it, perhaps people's grandparents who might be listening today mm. would have would have spent you know 40 50 years with the same employer or over 40 50 years with only two employers now i think the luxury we have now as well is that we can afford to try different jobs and actually we can we can be more socially mobile so we can mm. we can change our economic status as well we can we can do an, an entry level um, manual sort of whether it's a manufacturing job or whatever it might be we can start off doing that at 19 years old and by the age of 40 or by the age of 50, you could be a director within a completely different corporate environment. Um, mm. and, and that's what we have now and access to that now than, than, than we probably with more access to that now um, or an opportunity than we've ever had um, throughout history. So, and again, I think what's really important to say is that people with disabilities and health conditions, um, uh, there are a number of people that have reached the very highest points in different organisations and that should inspire and give a lot of confidence to people at any level at any age with a disability or health condition or or not um that you can you can aspire and you can achieve i think something that which really highlights that and is a great example to anybody out there of what um what you're just as examples of what you're capable of doing um is the and, and achieving uh, is a power 100 mm. um which is what something that sure trust um uh, have been running for for a number of years now, which is uh, so. Just to, you know, tell tell us a bit, little bit about the Power One Hundred, and also how important it is to have something like that. Yeah, and we, we've had some. I think what's really important is is um, is inspiring is people is is inspiring people and giving giving people people to aspire towards, and I think or publicising them as well. That's what's really important. So. You know, we, we've got a lot of fantastic people throughout history, and I think it's really important that we celebrate their achievements and what they've done, and they inspire people on a daily basis. Um, what we've probably not done well enough as a society, or what we well, actually definitely haven't done well enough as a society um, in general, is, is actually to um, inspire those with disabilities and health conditions, that there are role models out there with disabilities and health conditions who have achieved enormous amounts in their life and in their career. And the Power 100 does that, so that's that's exactly what it is. It talks about who the most inspirational people are across across this country. So, 
Um, one of the things that we're, we're constantly looking for is more sponsorship for that because we want to publicize those events. We want to get employers involved in them as well because we've had some fantastic recipients of those awards. I mean, over the years, people like Alex Brooker, for instance, who, who's won the award before. So that's 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 incredible because I said for our participants, and I remember when I first started at Shore Trust, we used to have these booklets, the Power 100 list would be in the office. And, and it would fill me with a lot of joy when I saw participants flicking through that and starting to look at it because I knew they had a disability health condition and they were opening a book and seeing other people like them who had overcome the same barriers, the types of barriers we were talking about before, and have gone on to achieve, as I said, in, in enormous things in their life. So that's that's really important for people to have, have role models. It comes down to that again, the power, power of awareness, just being aware what we are capable as individuals just looking have an example there of somebody going back to that Einstein quote everybody's a genius right mm. and if you if you've got an example of somebody who's showing what they're capable of doing and if you feel like yes I can do that as well um then that's that's so amazing so yes that it really shows uh, how powerful something like uh, the power 100 so I just want to say it's the disability power 100 that mm. sure trust have so if anybody's listening that's uh Go on to Google, just Google it, have a look. Um, it's such an amazing list. So I know at the moment it's it's kind of going through its uh, a process at the moment for this year's one as well. So um, that's going to be coming soon. James, thank you so much for uh, being my guest today. So much value, so much information as well. Just understanding what you do with IPES, understanding more about Sure Trust, how you can help participants, how you can help employers. I've written down some words uh, which I think sort of really encapsulate everything that you're you're doing uh, and also Sure Trust are doing. So you know I've put in awareness, education, empowerment, uh, inclusivity, and I think a part of the uh, education is adjustments as well. So those yeah. are some of the words that I've I've taken out or keywords which I think anybody who's listening can um, if they want to. Have a bit of a summary. That is kind of the words to summarise what we've talked about. So thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you and I wish you all the best with your journey in Sure Trust. Thanks, Jack.